Hey guys, Caitlin and Emily here, ATX co-founders and your guides on this podcast. This is going to be a live episode from ATX Television Festival Season 7. It's also our finale, and it'll have a little bit different feel. There's going to be a few more people on stage. There's going to be a host. There's a live audience. Being live from the festival, it really encompasses everything that the festival is. You'll hear Robert and Michelle King, co-creators of The Good Fight and The Good Wife. My personal favorite, Brain Dead. If you haven't watched it, I believe it's one of the best shows in recent years. Only 10 episodes. You can go watch it right now. Go do it. You'll also hear from David Simon, The Wire, Treme, Show Me a Hero, The Deuce. And they're just talking about how politics work their way into television. And you cannot separate these creators from social, cultural issues, politics. David Simon very famously was a journalist who started on Homicide and then did The Wire. It's really deeply rooted in real life and real issues. They do an amazing job of entertaining while showing whole new worlds. So hopefully in this live episode, you'll get a little glimpse of these creators telling very textured, deep character stories while reflecting either the world we don't want to live in or hopefully the one that we do. Pull up a log, pour yourself a drink, start roasting that marshmallow, and settle in for Politically Minded live from ATX TV Festival Season 7. Um, hi guys. You know, Saturday, losing my voice, that's what happens. A um, little bit of housekeeping. No recording, no flash photography. Um, this one is going to, if you've heard my intros, I've been talking a lot about the podcast. Uh, and this is, you're going to hear more about it. This is our finale episode of our new inaugural podcast, The TV Campfire. <laughs> Thank you. Download it. Subscribe. Rate it. We had the, this was a gift to Emily and I the last few months to be able to have really more than a five-minute conversation with panelists. Um, they were all born out of festival panels from previous years, so it only made sense to do a live one here at the festival. Um, it will be a little different than the ones that you'll hear currently. The ones on the podcast are two people. There's no host. Uh, it's very intimate. It's long, long form. This is obviously live audience moderator, um, but it is definitely born out of the same concept, and we'd love to keep doing more of them. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is Politically Minded, and here is Dan Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you much. Welcome to Politically Minded, everyone. We have a fantastic panel. I briefly contemplated attempting to set up a moratorium on mentions of Donald Trump and decided that that would be probably a futile gesture. So <laughs> consider this your trigger warning, I guess. This panel may make you angry, sad, or inspired, I hope. Anyway, we have a fantastic panel, and let's get them out here right now. Up first, we have the creators and showrunners of The Good Wife and The Good Fight, Robert King and Michelle King. There we go. And his current show on HBO is The Deuce, but you also know him from The Wire, Treme, Show Me a Hero, Homicide, Generation Kill, and a lot of great stuff. It's David Simon. Uh, first off, as uh, Kaylin mentioned, one of the great things about the TV Campfire podcast, 
available for download on iTunes if any of you want to, um, is how much it's really just a conversation. So if you guys want to start talking amongst yourselves at any point and ignore me entirely, I promise I will not be offended. So, Well, David just asked us, is there any way we don't want to go? Anywhere we don't want to go? So is there, besides Trump, I guess? Anywhere you want to go? Let's go there. And Trump's unavoidable. I'm sorry. <laughs> Even if he's in a foreign country and hasn't tweeted this morning. <laughs> Unavoidable. I wouldn't know about Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and that was going to be where I was going to start, David. <laughs> so what is the current status of your relationship with the social media platform known as Twitter? I'm just going to tell the, the head of uh, the CEO of uh, Twitter to drop. I'm going to use all the same language that got me banned, and then I'll be banned again. And, you know, I think it actually might be healthy for me. It's like, if I could just keep myself banned, I think my life might become more ordered. Well, I have a sort of uh, a horrible question. Is the discourse toxified permanently, do you guys think? How long is it going to take before we can reclaim whatever sort of conversational civility we might have had before 18 months ago or two years ago? I, I, just just a guess, but I don't think it's permanent. I, I, I think you get someone in a leadership position who shows civility and suddenly everyone changes their tone. I, I don't think we're stuck here. It's reached a new level of toxicity, so maybe we'll get out of that, but I think it's pretty bad or, and it will always be bad. What is your sense, David? Um, I, I'm worried about the systemic, which is to say... Um, there were always people who could um, sort of traffic in, in, in false um, premises and memes and, and, and slander. But you couldn't slander, you couldn't libel people uh, in the, in the pre-digital era because you know, in, in the act of publishing, you made yourself vulnerable. Um, the power of social media has transformed, the reach of it has transformed the way in which you can do business using rhetoric. Um, you can libel people. You can make up things. Yeah, Alex Jones, or you know, I mean, I'm, I, my friend Tony Bourdain, who you know took his life a couple of days ago. It was he, he, the news wasn't gone an hour before Alex Jones was saying that he was killed by the deep state because you know, I mean, I like, I mean, this is you're capable. Nobody is held responsible in the same way that we were when when print and broadcast had to be held legally responsible for what they said. So the tonality is that they've completely bypassed the structure by which we establish empirical truth. We don't, there's an entire construct for leading, and if you've ever talked to somebody who, you know, I mean, I had a conversation with a perfectly normal looking woman. Um, <laughs> normal behaving woman, normal acting woman who nonetheless told me that she didn't know who she was going to vote for because she didn't like Trump, but uh, Hillary had been involved in the murders of 200 people. She'd read it. So, you know, that's a, that's a world that is new. And, it, you know, whether or not Trump is beaten or, 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 or somebody, you know, or, or, the, or we have the next uh, rational leader of the country, everything has to be strained through that. And that's that's like I I don't know how you get I don't know how you get that back in the barn, to where vetted truth, you know, people sitting around saying is this true is this fair okay publish it, I don't know how we get back to that. 
are you far enough removed from your time as a journalist that you aren't necessarily wearing that hat anymore when you look at things like this happening, or do you still constantly think as a journalist when you see this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I certainly don't say the things online anymore that a journal, like, you know, I would have to withhold a lot of blunt opinion that I, I like, there it goes. I, I mean, I just say whatever I want now. So I'm not sure I'm thinking, I'm certainly not, my demeanor is not that of a journalist, and, and, and television, we're not doing journalism. I mean, we're, we're doing drama. So it's, I'm wearing different hats, and I'm behaving differently, but do I look at it with some affection for journalism and with some belief in the, in the elemental necessity of, of, I do. I mean, I think, I think what journalism is one of the few things that's trying to get a handle. Mainstream journalism is one of the few things trying to get a handle on, on this carnage, on this chaos. Uh, it's struggling. And it's up against a lot of an array of forces that are um, unprecedented, but at least it's fighting. I'm curious about how your process has changed in the past couple of years. I know that I wake up in the morning and it used to be I could actually just start working and, and I could concentrate on what I needed to do. And now there's like a 45 minute to an hour period each day where I have to catch up on everything horrible that I missed and find a way to process it. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you guys feel the same thing and if it's changed your rhythms, basically the rhythms of horrifying life. <laughs> well, the writer's room always spent an hour and a half just dicking around, just bullshitting. <laughs> so it probably has given it more focus in that there's a lot more debate about it. There's a very good uh, blog called Lawfare, which is taking a lot of the issues today and looking at the legal aspects of it and how it's taking away the guardrails, all those cliches. But so there was always a sense of, we have some lawyers in the room, and, and what does this mean? And the arguments, I mean, everybody's probably left-leaning, but the arguments were more about the, the original question of how much can you be optimistic, where does this move? So the only process I think has changed is I think it's focused the room more. I do think these are people who find a great value in going someplace to an office and knowing they don't have to ignore what's going on in the news, but it's really the subject of the discussion. And I think in terms of our shows, it's changed because so much more politics becomes part of the show. I, I think without this new rhythm, we wouldn't spend so much time looking at the news, and then it wouldn't seep into the show as much as it does now. And your rhythm? Uh, I just want to say that anybody who can limit the amount of dicking around in a writer's room to an hour and a half <laughs> has my utmost respect. That's, you're really cracking the whip. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I'll just tell, by way of an anecdote, I, I think how sort of startlingly it's astonishing, I think, how much has been, how much we took for granted as being the parameters of American politics has been tossed out the window in the last uh, two years. Um, I, I had a pilot order for, for HBO to do a show on Capitol Hill. And the premise of the show, and we, uh, the, the room went to work on this, was Congress was the part that was broken, um, which is still true. Congress is the, of all the elements of government, it's the one that is most e e easily purchased by mass capital. I mean, the, the, the price of a, you'd be, you'd be astonished how cheap congressmen come, as opposed to, I mean, it's, it's harder to buy and fight your way through populist notions in a presidential election, which is still 300 million. Um, you're, uh, the judiciary is still the judiciary, whether, you know, for whatever it's worth. Um, but Congress has become the point of paralysis and, and had for, 
I'm sort of buying into the, the Norm Ornstein logic of, you know, how bad it got, beginning with the hyper-partisanship after uh, Gingrich, you know, uh, that, you can sort of date it to that moment. So we're like looking at this, we're looking at just this, and we're going to do a story about a mainstream Republican subcommittee chair woman uh, who's frustrated by the inertia and the, the brokenness of the system. But we premised it on, uh, you know, Romney will be president or, or, uh, or Kasich or, or uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton. It didn't matter. Like, there'll be some center, center left, center right, rationalist, coherent, you know, non-insane um, <laughs> person who's the executive. And, and there'll be this elemental pressure, you know, from, from, from the money on this, on this institution. We wrote that pilot, and then Trump won, and we threw that pilot out. We had we we started the room over again, and then we we then we thought, well, what is Trump? You know, okay, well he's you know it's basically like he's um, he's Huey Long but stupid. You know, so it's like it's it's a populist, but he doesn't actually believe in even the, the tenets of populism. He believes in whatever you know whoever talked to him last, or, and we thought he and, and so he was sort of remarkably ineffective in our second pilot, and then they passed the tax bill. Like, just rammed that through, and you said, wait a sec, and we threw that one out. So, like, we're on our fourth now, and, and I don't think we can go ahead with this project. Like, we're waiting for the, the, the midterms. We're waiting to see what happens. Is there a blowback? Is there, is there, does, it, does the system write itself in any remote way? I, I don't know how to write this. I don't know what the world is. How do I write it? I mean, that's, but, but I'm looking right at it, and I think you were answering something different, which I agree with, which is, when you're not looking right at it, you're writing other things. All of the politics of the moment do do leach in, exactly as you're saying. Well, you guys had a show that premiered two years ago, roughly at this time, that was about Congress and how it was dysfunctional because of uh, bugs and uh, hallucinations and other craziness. Was Brain Dead like 15 minutes ahead of its time? <laughs> we had no idea we were making a documentary. That's right. Timing is everything. <laughs> well, as you look at that show, though, does part of you wish that you could get it on air now because it would play entirely different in 2018 versus the way it played two years ago? The, the, the premise of that show was that the Democrats and Republicans were equally problematic because the bugs from outer space were crawling into the ears of both sides of the aisle and making them hyper-partisan. I, the difficulty now is I do think the Republicans have driven everything off the cliff. I hate to be that partisan. And the Democrats are now like, okay, you're served. Now it's our time to return, and we're going to go just as insane. I mean, this is where I probably disagree with a lot of people in the room. Is So I think it would be difficult because Brain Dead was kind of saying a, a plague on both your houses. And I don't know if that's accurate at the moment. Um, but it might be accurate in another six months, and then we'll be canceled again. So maybe, maybe we should wait till we can be canceled right on time. But it's just very funny to me how uh, the Good Fight is a show set in our grounded world, and yet the tone of Brain Dead has made itself into the Good Fight. It's now become the real world tone. That's terrifying, frankly. I, I think if you just replace the, the the bugs, the alien bugs, with money. The metaphor holds. So, 
I think we were always impacted by, there's a, a wonderful Mike Judge movie called Idiocracy, that when it came out, no one, just, I was in a theater with like three other people, and two were asleep. Um, and it was like, but what was so good and prescient about that was um, how comic uh, stupidity can be. But you always have to find an angle on it. And the difficulty, I think, with political shows, because um, we're pitched quite a few, is that there's, it almost takes it too seriously. It's, it's a little, it's a thing you kind of have to throw away like a Frisbee instead of, you know, looking at position papers. and everything. The problem is no one's interested in the position papers. So what can you find that is entertaining? Clearly, we didn't find the right thing or we'd still be on the air right now. But uh, it, to, enter, to us, it was entertaining that you treat Roger Corman as if it crossed with Patty Chayefsky. You know, what, what point of contact do they have with each other? I mean, part of the problem of doing a political show right now is that actual politics is so entertaining and mesmerizing that you're, you're falling short when you're doing fiction. I mean, for whatever else you want to say about the Trump administration, it's extremely well cast. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I couldn't think of Scaramucci. <laughs> That's, I mean, genuinely, that's a problem in television. And that's what you were saying even, that's why you keep breaking the writer's room and going back, is the events are outrunning your ability right. to fictionalize. I mean, we, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, we had a moment of um, a, a spending, a part of a spending bill involving a weapons system. She was on the uh, House Armed Services Subcommittee. And, uh, she had managed to shepherd some rational compromise on, you know, we're killing this system, we're going to keep that one. It'll be made here, the parts will be, you know, it was this delicate thing. And we had Trump who, you know, in the second cast version where we were trying to contemplate Trump, we had him like tweeting something insane that, you know, completely undoes, you know, the last three weeks of, of, of careful <laughs> legislative work. That's so pedestrian compared to... You know, compared to Trump tweeting the, the shit that he does, or, or like you know, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani running down a porn star in Israel for like you know, I mean, like this is our discourse. So like here we are, like in our little writers' room, trying to go like, yeah, a guy like this can't really govern. He's you know, he's going to be upsetting the apple cart. Fuck the apple cart. This guy is like you know, he he's, you know, this is. This is where this is farce, except people are really being hurt. So it's like you try to get back to the reasons you were doing the political show because, like, you know, it actually does affect human lives. Um, you know, there's people at the border right now who are being pulled from their kids, and you know, but um, it, you're lost in this insanity that is, as you say, jaw dropping in its entertainment value. And that's the only thing that guides us to the good fight this season. Sorry to pump, but um, uh, we have Christine Baranski's character microdosing and then dosing uh, mushrooms and liquid mushrooms. And so when she watches the news, we're not sure if it's based on the psychedelics or if it is truly the factual news. And so I think that's the only way we found to handle it was to turn the absurdity into... You know, the point of view of the character, is she a faulty narrator, or is that truly what Trump's going to tweet out tomorrow? Well, along those lines, you could have 
not dived as aggressively into the actual Trumpiness of it all as you did in season two. You guys went hard after the narrative and after the experience that we're all having going back to the going back to the how you wake up in the morning and experience the world differently now you got into the trump derangement syndrome to some great depth when did you know that you wanted to do that and was it a want to do it or did you feel like you just had to given the characters and the world well we were really certain about what we wanted to do when we started the second season and that was to stay completely away from Trump. And, and then, of course, we didn't. Yeah, I mean, we were saying, oh, this is the season of hope because people are going to reach a saturation point. Because what we were finding with Trump was not even that he, he would stay in politics. He would, he would find his way into writing samples. He would find his way into every aspect of culture. And we thought, well, that's the last thing you want to do is throw another log on that bonfire. But then <laughs> we just, it was, it was kind of what everybody was talking about. It was kind of, you had to, what was the position on it that would make it original was our take, which was not how, what Trump is doing, but how we're all living in this world, this new world that has changed so much in two years. And, and also, it would have been a lie not to, because we'd established these characters. And you know, one had seen uh, Christine Baranski's character for so many years and knew that she was an ardent liberal. Well, she's going to be talking about this. So it would have been false not to. Do you even remember what season two of the show was going to be if Hillary had won? <laughs> Yes, we pitched it to CBS, and they were silent on the phone. We said, it's going to be about uh, tort reform. <laughs> Yay, tort reform. And it's going to be so, that each, each episode is going to have a climax that is going to get us closer to the issue of tort reform. And they were like, by the way, you have me. <laughs> I am your demographic right now. <laughs> we had to argue how it's, uh, you know, an existential issue for the law firm because if there's tort reform, <laughs> they just, and they were, they were so polite. They were so, <laughs> no, they were so, we trust you, but. <laughs> I feel like I need to do the arrested development narrator voice. The season was not about tort reform. <laughs> But it also made the show much, much funnier this past season. Did you realize immediately you could not do it without making it as, as David said, as, as farcical as the second season was? Well, we had our daughter who was, oh my gosh, 16 at the time, come home and say, um, have you read the news? And she's a joker. She's a comic and said, no. She said, well, one of the, the press secretary just said that What's his name? Banoff? No. Uh, Bannon? Bannon um, could flate himself, could suck his own dick. And we were like, stop it. This is not, you know, <laughs> no, one, no one would say that on the news. No one, and, you know, just, okay, split off SNL from life. And, and she was like, okay, you'll find out. And then we're always, you know, one Google alert away from finding out anything. And it was like, oh, my. And so we wanted to capture that sense that the news was uncontrollable, and as you said, porn stars. I think we have the line in there about you know, you know, this is not Woodward and Bernstein. And the last episode is actually almost a shot-for-shot -shot parody of all the president's men, but 
with Deep Throat truly being a porn star who doesn't do <laughs> Deep Throat, but meets in a garage. I mean, what we had to do was play off of the, the, the farcical, you're right, it's farcical, so what can you do? I'm not someone who says you can't satirize it because you can't satirize things that satirize itself. Fuck yeah, you can. That's actually what you should satirize. I mean, they need to have, you just need the cock up their ass to be that much bigger to get it. <laughs> I'm not following David. I'm not following you. asked if there was anything we wanted to stay you... away from. Apparently not. <laughs> By the way, and, I, and I'm the one that got kicked off Twitter. David, can you imagine, though, wanting to be reflecting what's happening currently in, in such a literal and present way as they have done? I feel like done. it is time to... Your mic. Don't forget your mic. Oh, what mic? <laughs> Hi. Um, I, I feel like it, this is the moment where you got to stand up. And I, I actually think, I don't, mean, I don't mean to bring the room down, but I think this is the moment where the republic is really tottering. Um, and certain th again, certain things that we took for granted as being uh, inherently implausible uh, and, and beyond the pale for the American political construct um, are now on the table. And so I think if you're, if you're trying to occupy public space with narrative, um, whether it's television or, f or film or, or art or, or journalism, or, um, I think if you're not speaking to this, you're missing, the, you're missing a moment that is, you're obligated to. I think we all are. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that all art has to be political, but all art inevitably is political on, on some measure of the spectrum. And I think if you're not attending to what's happening now, you're going to be judged. Um, I, I really believe that. I mean, I think um, you know you're seeing things happen in the society now that are really brutalizing, and I'm astonished at the normalcy with which things are happening and how people regard it as being like, yeah, well, let's discuss that. And and I'm like, what is there to discuss? You know, we're now at the point of. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, what I got tossed off Twitter for was basically the, 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 the wave of people, Trump, Trumpites or bots or, or, you know, whatever was in support of this, were saying, we've always torn children from mothers uh, and housed them incommunicado. At the, no, we haven't. And they, and they would throw up a picture of an, the unaccompanied uh, kids that were arriving two years, or back in 2014, and say, look, here's these kids without mothers. Yeah, but they didn't come with their mothers. We didn't do, like, a, you just, you're screaming, look at my apple. It's an orange. And you think by virtue of the fact that you keep arriving with the same equation, eventually the apple becomes an orange. And they're right. It does. And so I look at this and I, I say, we have to figure out a way to call this moment what it is. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is 1933. This is the Weimar. This is no, nobody imagining the next step. And then everybody laughing because you're saying, oh, you, you just, you know, you violated the Godwin rule. You just compared, you know, I'm sorry, but like even Mike Godwin is now saying, my rule doesn't count anymore. You know, <laughs> if you're paying attention, this is how it starts. And, and I think like, so every time I'm, you know, this is kind of funny because, I mean, I, we started a show called Deuce, which is what I'm sort of currently shooting. 
And at the time we thought, yeah, this is a really smart way of discussing misogyny and, and sexual commodification. A lot of the, the stuff that, you know, and we were sort of, thank God, six months ahead of the Me Too moment. And now I feel like I just keep getting drawn over to this. Like I'm, I'm trying to like deal with this one aspect of uh, like, well, this is worth discussing. And, and, and so I'm, this is occupying my time. And I feel like there's this huge wave crashing down on, on the entire premise of, of American society and, and on, our, on our whole capacity for self-governance. So, yeah, like we have to figure out a way to speak to it. But all this talk that I just I tried to answer your question, but like I don't have the fr again, I'm, I'm the guy with the pilot that I rewrote four times. This is really hard. This is this is I don't know what to do. Um, I got we got to figure it out, though. Well, as you say, you had a show, you have a show that did anticipate a lot of the conversations that we've been having about abuses of power, about exploitation, and that preceded them being in the cultural conversation. As you were working on the second season, did the cultural conversation sort of bleed back into what you were doing? Um, we were, the three, the three seasons we have planned, we had planned. Um, as we looked at the second season, a lot of what had come up in the Me Too stuff uh, dovetailed almost perfectly. Um, so we felt like the thing I remember saying to each other was, thank God uh, Harvey Weinstein happened six months after. Um, we, uh, uh, and not six months before, because I think the first episode of the, the Deuce would have been judged as, oh, more of the same, when in fact it was a critique of exactly that, you know, using the, the allegory of. Uh, or the historical allegory of the rise of pornography. So, like, I just felt like, man, finally we caught, a, you know, we would have been canceled, or they, they would have, they would have freaked out. Um, and uh, and um, I felt like we ducked the bullet. But I don't think, it, I think we were on what what it is about. I mean, I, I think we were. It hasn't really changed the content so much. But I do feel like, as I said, we're like, we're we're surrounding something that is. A little more ethereal than, my God, the Constitution's unraveling before your eyes. You know, like you know, the habeas corpus is disappearing, and and uh, you know, uh, and, and they're talking about internment camps, and you know, and and, um, and they're not, you know, I mean, like, I feel like everything that's in the abstract is almost a wasted moment, um, and that's dangerous because. And, and I, this I'd really like to hear your, your views on, because at some point you just got to go out and tell a story. And if you try to put everything you feel politically into the characters or their mouths or the dialogue, it ends up being didactic. It ends up not being good. So at some point you have to sort of you know, not think about everything you want to say politically and force it down the gullets of your characters. So maybe it's a good thing that you sort of, I'm not busy designing the exact show to answer to Trump, because it, it might be terrible, but it might it'd be terrible drama. Do you feel it's um, difficult to be doing a period show right now, or do you feel like that's a benefit to you? Benefit, yeah. I mean, if I was doing a Me Too show about Hollywood right now, that's just too fraught and too, and, and, and everybody's making, they're little, connecting little dots between yesterday's headline and, you know, who's got caught up in this. and. Um, yeah, the, being a little bit off center with the, the, with time and place allows you to be full throated and not worry about 
you know, exactly what the constellation of the, the truth is. It's, it, it helps. Is there any sort of temptation? Because you are in a period where if you wanted to, there could be characters experiencing housing discrimination courtesy of Fred Trump and young Donald Trump. You know, there are ways that you could have brought that into the story if you wanted to. But I can also understand completely why you would want to avoid the hell out of that. I mean, if it came up, we would have that moment. If, if we literally bumped into the... But, you know, we're not in Queens. We're not... Um, Real estate is actually a huge part of season three because when when uh, and when the and the beginning of the transformation away from what Times Square was, but that's really a story about uh, not so much about Trump um, as it is about uh, that moment when all of the all of the profit of the old New York was dwarfed by the potential of the New York new New York. It's like, and so there's a there's a wit to saying I think if we do it right there's a wit to saying all of the moralizing in the world all the police work all of the you know we're going to clean it out we're going to do this we're going to you know we're going to declare you know we're going to regard this as a moral equation never solved a thing for 30 years you know what solved what what got rid of time the old Times Square but not pornography of course that's because because you know it just went you know it just went to become a five billion dollar industry. But so the moralizing didn't work, but land values and the capacity to make more money with with the real estate ended it. So there's something funny about that. The idea of like, I don't know, we can make more money by moving this into your living rooms. And, you know, so there's something fun to be done. But I'm not I'm not like, you know, where can we get Trump into the story? It's like, you know, again, you can see yourself pulling yourself out of shape to, to, to land a punch. And it's not worth it. Well, Robert and Michelle, I want to go back to what David was saying about sort of the idea of forcing this down the gullet of what would be otherwise a story. You know, it, it ceases to be a story at a certain point if it's just someone yelling into the void about Donald Trump. Were there challenges to that in this past season where a lot of it is someone yelling into the void about Donald Trump? Uh, no, because that was part of the point, which was Christine Baranski felt alone in the world that she was the one screaming. So probably by being a little meta of it about it, we were. I think we're always trying to find a connection between the loss of guardrails and the impact of technology on the loss of guardrails and how it affects the law. So there was one where there was Alan Alda played it this year, where he played a lawyer who seemed to be going senile because he was asking all these strange questions uh, of a witness on the stand about, you know, had he ever been involved with dogfights and everything? And, and you were wondering, well, why the hell is he doing that? And then it realized it, that he was using Facebook to micro-target the jurors with false news about... So, in other words, exactly what the Russians were doing in the election, we found that that is a worry about you can easily use the Facebook technology to micro-target fake news that you create to support whatever argument you're making in court and do it without your fingerprints being on it at all. So uh, I think when you change up, you, you, there's other ways to get at it. And also not only to get at it, not to land a punch or anything, but to also look at the ways the last two years are affecting all the other things we trust and all the other things we should worry about. What do you think? Yeah, and I would say the biggest fear in our writer's room is earnestness. So we're very conscious of that. And we're satirizing the left 
almost as frequently as we are the right. So I think we managed to skirt that. Well, when you're in the process of kind of ripping something from the headlines as literally as you did this past season, do you have to make peace early in the process with the idea that if you're addressing this one grotesque thing that happened, that 25 more grotesque things will have happened in the interim while you were editing, that it's now become sort of a thing in the past? Well, it is one of the advantages of working so close to the premiere date of the episodes. We're often, our mix is only a week before, but we've finished shooting, at the end we were finished shooting three weeks before the air date. I know. Um, it was crazy. So you were able to adapt. I mean, there was an episode we did where the left wing is interested in the PP tape, the golden shower tape, and they're, they, they, anyway, they're pursuing that. And there was a, a very long monologue given by Margot Martindale about how the Stormy Daniels thing was reported on by the Wall Street Journal, and that just disappeared. And so we had to go in and ADR uh, you know, the change, because it, it, it didn't go away. It did. So our expectation a month before was that Stormy Daniels felt like it was disappearing on us, and then Stormy Daniels became her own publicist, as her lawyer did, and it became in the news again. So you're always just having to tweak things just to make it make sense. And you're also worried, by the way, that you're going to be trumped by reality. Um, so... Does that answer your question? Sure. I didn't, okay. Well, David, how, how crazy does that process sound to you? Of <laughs> that was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, like, again, that's why, you know, I'm always either the, the safety of a period piece or narrowing the focus so that I'm just, like, in my, in my mind, the political show is ne never going to see the president. We were, ne we were not going to, you might see him on, on a screen, uh, in somebody else's office, but I was really going to stay close to House, Senate, Senate office, House, you know, and and corridors and uh, you know uh, uh, places on K Street. You know, I was really not going to go to the White House if I could avoid it, or or just go to the edge of it. So, for that very reason, because I felt like, man, I'll always be chasing my tail like that, and and. Our production deadlines are often, you know, you're, you, the, the window is often distant from when you're when you're broadcasting, so it's even making you more vulnerable. I I feel like the the pieces work when it comes out, and then there's stuff that happens in the news after it, because you've hit something that is always going to be a uh, a stress point. Like with Show Me a Hero, um, I remember at the moment that it was being broadcast. Two towns higher up the river than Yonkers, um, it was Terrytown and it was one other, um, were having the same fight about building low-income housing. And the same rhetoric was being thrown ar around by the politicians. Uh, and I thought, oh, good. You know, like, there was a reason we did that. And, like, it's never going away. And, um, and when that happens, I feel like, okay, I've done something that's been generic enough, but pointed enough that it worked. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's like trying to actually stay in step with the reality seems terrifying to me. Well, you have like 40 years of cushion for the deuce. You had 20 plus on Show Me a Hero. You had a few years on Generation Kill. You had a few years on Terme. How many years past this do you think we're going to have to be before there's going to be any sort of retrospective? Um, I would say... If we don't get a handle on it, if something doesn't change in terms of how 
of, of how we keep the money out of our political system and how we keep the money out of uh, distorting our media culture uh, for purposes of, of routing power and, and maximizing profit. If, until we figure that out, the chance, the, the idea of worrying about where 40 years, like we're all gonna be, make, we're going, it's not gonna be a TV show. We're gonna be like staging it as a, a seven part, you know, play in, in the recreation yard in Guantanamo because, you know, I mean, like, we're either going to get a handle on this or all the premises by which things are going to stay the same in American life are not. It's, you know, what we, what we assume, it's like a Vonnegut story. It's like, you know, you're in a Vonnegut story and you're like, I think, you know, I, I always remember this moment in a Vonnegut novel, I think it was Slapstick, where uh, the president of the Midwest, because America's been disassembled at this point, is reading a history book and, and he, he comes up with the collect. Those who don't read history are condemned to repeat it. And he's doing this in a world where like every day gravity is different. You know, like some days you can't get out of bed, some days you can fly, you know? And, and the guy who hears him says this, he goes, like you pompous fucking asshole. Like, you know, what history book was gonna tell you that we were gonna fuck up gravity, you know? <laughs> but, but in some way, like politically now, at this moment in America, we are fucking with gravity. And so I can't speak to like what the narratives are gonna be. The narratives may be intensely controlled in terms of where the money goes and what stories you're able to tell. And on that terrifying note, let's get to some questions from the audience. <laughs> It's no fun trying to find the perfect pair of jeans. You don't want to spend hundreds of dollars, at least I don't. You want something that lasts so you don't have to do that shopping over and over and over again. At the same time, you want your butt to look good, you want to feel comfortable in them, you don't want to have to think about it in the morning, you just want to put them on and go about your life. So here's the deal. Distilled offers premium denim and luxury essentials at an affordable price. Jeans that would normally cost hundreds of dollars, Distilled has starting at just 75 Just as an FYI, I am running around on planes. I'm running from the plane onto a meeting. Honestly, I may have slept in mine from time to time. They'll ship them to you for free and give you free returns until you find the perfect pair. All you have to do is go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D, and then use that promo code TV Campfire at checkout and get 20% off any style you want. They're practically giving them to you, free shipping, free returns. You're going to be trying them on at home, probably while the television's on. Really, what do you have to lose? Go right now, use the code 20% off, D-S-T-L-D.com. Um, to Michelle and Robert, I really have liked on The Good Wife and on The Good Fight that you do um, represent people like Lamont Bishop and the wife killer, and especially in the ride-along episode this, this season, the moral ambiguity of it. Um, what's that process like in the writer's room and navigating that? We have a terrific group of writers, and, you know, for example, when we were doing The Good Wife, one of the writers her father had been a drug dealer. So there, you know, she was able to provide some insights into, yeah, you can be a criminal and a family person. The, these things, you know, aren't always separate. And that's just our experience of life as well. 
people aren't just one thing. We will have dread, dreadfully nasty attorneys like the one played by Michael J. Fox, who's really a swell guy at home. And so that just mirrors our version of reality. And with the ride-along episode, I think you went into that episode, we know what our audience is thinking usually, which is, oh, the cops are going to be assholes. And so what you want to do is lead them down that path and then show, no, 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 the liberal lawyers who are doing the ride-along misunderstood completely. And it, it all is just trying to be not cliché. You know, whenever you see a network show, there's a priest, you know he's going to end up molesting a child or it's going to be revealed in his past. You know, it's better to go the route that you don't expect because A, that's life, and B, it just is surprising. You're putting, the audience isn't sure where, like to use your, they don't know where gravity is in the episode. Usually there's a real network, like three little bears quality to it. This happened, then this happened. And so that expectation is what comforts you and allows you to, fold your laundry when you watch the TV show. But what's fun and keeps you awake is when you're not sure whether the writer, A, what they're thinking, and B, they may be trying to discover something as they're writing it. That's the one where you're kind of like, oh, shit, what, what's going to happen next? Well, that's been sort of a principle of yours as well. I mean, you've, you've always sort of... I don't like it when they fold the laundry. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the... I, I resent it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but I mean, in particular, making audiences have to have their expectations of certain character types cheated or entirely, you know, yeah. flipped. You start with everything starts somewhere that, you know, Generation Kill is a war movie. It's also a road movie. Uh, the Wire is a cop show. I mean, you're starting with these tropes that um, exist and they exist for, you know, inevitable reasons and maybe even necessary reasons. Um, and then it's what you do within them and, and where you, and, and what you have to say about them that, that differentiates whether or not the story was worth following. Um, I, I, the only thing that, the only rule that I have that, um, I'm not afraid of landing in a world that you think, you know, as long as I have something else to say about it, as, as long as the writer's room is capable of being fresh about, and we had a reason to be in that world. But at the end of the day, the only thing that the only metric that I have that, that really works is it did the story did the story say what we believe? And was it consistent? Like did we hold to theme? And the first two weeks in the writer's room, nobody puts up a card, nobody we haven't defined the characters yet. The first couple weeks are always, why are we doing this show? What do we want to say about X or about Y? You know, okay, we have this material. You know, this guy came to us with this stuff about Times Square and the rise of pornography and, the, you know, when it, when it went from being sort of in a brown paper bag to being street legal. What? That's interesting. But why are we doing it? Like, because that's a big question. And the answer in a lot of writing rooms and in a lot of network offices is always because uh, we think it can sustain itself. Because it might be a franchise. Because so-and-so is attached. Because... It sounds because the first script crackles, you know, it's not like ask yourself what the last scene, like where you're going to go in the end. What do you what we've said? That's epic. That's like that's that's where the heavy lifting happens in the room. Why are we telling the story? What are we going to say? So. And if you have questions, come up. But other there we are. Excellent. Come on down. 
Um, my question is, I guess the premise is basically about the, the fact that the, the mainstream media, where people traditionally have gone for information, seems to be very focused on entertaining us these days, so it's hard to know where to go for actual information. So that being the case, I guess I'm just curious, um, given that, uh, I guess, has that, has that shifted um, the where you feel like maybe you have a responsibility um, to inform more because there's less places to get actual information and or do you think that the storytelling, what has traditionally been storytelling and, enter and entertainment, A, can inform or B, has a responsibility to inform more these days? Let me say something funny. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle! <laughs> I, I guess I believe that there's still mainstream media doing a terrific job putting out information. So, you know, I'm going to the New York Times or the Washington Post and, you know, many other news sources. And, and so I personally do not feel an obligation to do their job. You know, it's it's characterizations and storytelling and, and sometimes satire. Yeah, I mean, we just want to entertain. And politics to us is entertaining. Uh, the worry is when the writer's room wants to teach. And we're always just like, I mean, we're always trying to avoid immigration stories because there's just... There's no way we can feel that it's a debate in the show because we land so much on one side of it. Same thing with capital punishment. Uh, so the show just – we tried building in the writer's room. It's just like you're reading it going, oh, my God, I am bored to death. So holding people's interest is more important than getting across because, you know – no one really wants to be taught. I mean, no one, even in school, people don't want to be taught. So, I mean, the bottom line is if you can hit or get across thoughts, but debating thoughts like George Bernard Shaw kind of thoughts in the process of telling a fun story, the audience, I think, is a much more ready to absorb or be interested. Well, David, in the fifth season of The Wire, you took, you know, you sort of focused on journalism for a lot of that season, and, and it felt at the time, like it was you working out some cynicism about the reporting of the truth and how people, how journalists sometimes can steer stories. As you look back on that storyline, does it feel like it would be even more extreme today if you were to be doing the I mean, similar the thing? The storyline was basically saying, it was putting the coda on the whole show and saying, while all this other shit was happening, while we were misdirecting, while we were misdirecting all of our policy and all of our efforts and while we were buying, you know, this, um, uh, this metric and, and this false premise about the drug war, about poverty. What were, what were we paying attention to? Uh, and where, where was the, you know, where was the um, intellectual critique uh, and the journalistic critique? So the last thing we wanted to do was say, what, what were we paying attention to and what were we not paying attention to while this America, you know, came undone uh, in this sort of metaphor of the city? Um, I think in some respects that critique that, that, that media has um, has been failing at points, it works in some respects. It works in the regional newspapers, which have been eviscerated by Wall Street and which where, where the, the revenue stream has died. So, you, you know, if, if you're here, I, I, mean, I actually have not read the Austin paper in, in, in a good while. I can't I don't want to make it local, but it's certainly in my in Baltimore. Um, the paper is really struggling. A hundred People are trying to do the job that used to be 600. They're not covering as much. They're getting to some of it. They're still very committed, but Tronk is still, you know, it's taking the money and it's giving it to its executives and it's giving it to uh, the shareholders and it's not replenishing. There's no regard for the future of 
or for the mission of journalism. You know, again, capital. If profit's your metric for judging whether something's good or bad, this is the society you're paying for. So that there is a failure. And no, I don't think television drama can step in. I mean, look, it's taken me four years to do just one thing, one allegory on 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 sexual commodification. So great, I've gotten one issue surrounded, and I'm, I get to say everything I want to say. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is coming in waves. So that's my point about like you know you can't be like we can't replace the power of daily journalism, nor should we. What has to happen is we have to solve the revenue stream, and everybody has to support this as being elemental because the democracy can't function without a constant stream of self critique. Um, so, it, it, you know, yes, the new on, on the other hand, the New York Times and the Washington Post. They've solved their existential crisis of why you go into journalism and why it matters. And, you know, they're chasing an administration that's fairly lawless. And they're, the, they're about the only people that have the gravitas to do it right now. Congress certainly is not doing any oversight. So, like, in some ways, journalism feels a little bit, as you were saying, a little healthier than it did maybe in the run-up to the election. I'm, I'm sort of proud of some of journalism and what they're trying to do at the high end. But man, it's been hollowed out, and, and there's there's so many empty desks in so many newsrooms, and um, and, and no, we're not going to fix that with the entertainment industry. That's not going to happen. Hi, oh, the stand up. <laughs> this question is for uh, David. Um, going through all the the characters that you've had on your shows, uh, from the corner all the way to the deuce, um, I would imagine that you might have gotten some backlash from certain communities about the portrayals of dope dealers, rappers, uh, and all that. I read something recently where you were saying that you really wanted to show why people are in certain situations and why they just can't pick up and move and why they may deal drugs, uh, which I think really got the point across. But I know that there's a lot of uh, blissful ignorance that's still out there, which which is obvious, and we're finding out more and more each day with uh, you know politics and just uh, things going on um, in the news. Um, I, I guess I'd really like to hear a little bit more about that and about why uh, where this comes from in you. Yeah, this is the part of me that is not. Um... I wasn't trained for the entertainment industry, nor, nor are the metrics. Obviously, if the metrics of the entertainment industry were mine, I might have viewers. Because <laughs> hey, you're looking at somebody who's gone as far in his career as you could possibly go and not having anybody watch the shows while they're on the air. It's amazing I still have a job. I'm not, at any moment, I expect HBO to go, it's been nice, but pack your bag. But, um, but the truth is, like, I'm not interested in what, like, I, I used I used to marvel at like the um, the Law and Order uh, franchise because they were all all the murders were in Manhattan, mm -hmm. not in the outer boroughs, mm -hmm. and it was always like rich white yeah. people yeah. killing people yeah. for the most obscure sexual yeah. dynamic. Yeah. It was like <laughs> she was sleeping with him, and like you're just watching it going like people kill people because they don't have money mm -hmm. and and because uh, and because they're marginalized. Mm -hmm. That's where the murder rate goes. That so you know show me people who are marginalized. In, in, the, in the city and county of New York or, or, or Brooklyn, and, and you're going to be in, you know, you're going to be in, uh, in the projects, you're going to be in Morningside, not anymore, by the way, not anywhere in Manhattan, it's all money, but you're going to be out in East New York. I mean, it, it follows poverty. Yeah. It always has. So 
that part of me is like, I'm not going to lie to you about, if I'm doing a show about violence, I'm not going to lie about where the violence is. Mm -hmm. So once you stop telling that lie of like cleaning it all up and making it racially comfortable for everybody, mm -hmm. then you're obligated to present context. Now, does it succeed with everybody? Here's the horror of doing this business, which is I can't write for the, you know, fucking Breitbart sucking troll who's ready to strain everything through his pre-existing racism and then comment on it. Mm -hmm. I can't write for that guy. I can't, I'm never convincing him to be any better than he is. Uh, he's, 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 you know, I, there, it's a, it's a long day's journey for a human being to come out of that hole into any degree of awareness. Not saying nobody does it, but I'm saying I don't. I don't have an equation where I can make him. I can give you. I can give him twelve episodes and go here. This will fix you. Mm -hmm. So if I write for if I write for that guy, and I try to like explain everything in in the most gen lead him, then I'm the story itself becomes fraudulent with exposition of you know, it's like the characters all start speaking about like, you know, on the deuce. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all the guys who were the 8th Avenue pimps were African-American mm -hmm. in, in 1972 or 77, you know, there was, or Latino by 77. So, like, we're following the actual oral histories that we have. We're actually doing the characters we know existed. And there's a part of me that winces and says, man, you know, th this is just grist for the assholes. Yeah. And I can't, but on the other hand, if I don't do the pimps, as it actually, as the dynamic actually works, I'm I'm cheating sexual commodification. I'm 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 actually taking, and that, like that, it's just it's a it's a horror show of knowing that the wire exists as a framework for arguing policies I believe in about ending the drug war or mass incarceration. Like it exists in the way I intended it to, and it's grist for a good like, things I wanted it to happen. But I also know that if I go to any racist site uh, on on the internet and click in the wire on their search function, you know, I'm going to find it being, you know, used in the most um, flattened version of, you know, this is how black people do. And look how, look how they fucked up Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't write for them. If I write for them, I write, it all goes to shit, but I know they're there and it's really, you know, it's disheartening on one level. So I, I heard that in your question. Hi there. Um, so in a world where it seems like, you know, the political news is apocalyptic on basically a daily basis, I'm wondering if you see maybe the entertainment industry making a big pendulum swing in the near future. So like it did during the Depression or George W. Bush, like, will we have our next West Swing? Will we see like a optimistic vision of either an imagined present or a future? Or if we're looking toward the past, towards successful stories of political activism, sort of in that, like, I think there's this hunger to provide hope for the future and I'm wondering where you see that going in Hollywood uh, writers I hear from are being told in pitches don't pitch towards the coasts um, which I think is the Roseanne effect I don't know if that's changed since the you know the the, the just the cancellation of that series but I think there is a sense of um, there might be a tendency to go rah-rah like Top Gun is coming out again. You know, there might be a tendency to go in the direction of trying to find optimism in, you know, a patriotic um, 
make America great again. So I don't know what's happening. That's happening probably at the network level. I don't know what's happening at the streaming level. And Michelle? Yeah, I mean, you may well be right. It, those shows probably won't come from anyone sitting on this couch. But, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they're not going to show up. Well, is there, as you're working on this congressional project that you've mentioned, is there any part of you that has the temptation to go not, I don't want to say Capra-esque, but I feel like we, when we think of what Capra-esque actually means, we think of the, but we, <laughs> we think of one version of what Capra-esque means, whereas Mr. Smith Goes to Washington has a lot of cynicism to it that people don't remember, and It's a Wonderful Life has a lot of darkness that people don't remember. Is, do you have that bone in your body at all, or and not. Dickens has a lot of uh, reality about the industrial revolution and poverty, but at the end, there's always some fucking uncle who, like, you know, adopts the kid, you know, and like it all, you know. I mean, you know, little Nell, you know, it's all it's all going to end well, and, and and that is that that the oversold notion of redemption uh, is um, is never going to go out of style. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean that that's. Capra did it better than almost anybody. Is here's all of the attendant um, risk and horror of of American society, but in the end, you know, the angel's going to get his wings. And so, I'm much more interested in that moment of. Um, I mean, one of the films that I love about politics. Um, uh, well, I mean, uh, the original um, All the King's Men, and and that novel. I think it's one of the great American novels, truly top five at least. But um, on a more modern sense is that moment at the end where we, we elect the guy who we think we like in Robert Redford in The Candidate and he looks at the camera and says, what do we do now to his handlers? Um, I'm much more interested in the systemic and because I think the systemic is what we're beholden to and what we either, we either fix or we don't fix it. We either attend to it and okay, I'm about to say something like, this is as, as comforting as I can get. Um, I'm Jewish. My father, uh, my late father, he had one thing that he drilled into us every Passover, every Passover Seder, Jewish holiday. Um, it's about the, the exodus from Egypt. That's what the holiday is about. And he said, this is, this is elemental to every political moment that you'll ever face. Um, this is how my father talked, by the way. It was, it was that kind of household. Um, but he said, he said, freedom can never be completely won, but it can be lost. And that's what I'm like, that whole idea of every day you get up and you got to kill a few snakes, and, and it'll never be a world without snakes. It, but you got to kill a few every day or you'll be overrun. That's, that's the only way democracy works. It, like, it's never about, like, and now we fixed it. That moment never comes. It, it, like it, you want to, you want to have governance, collective governance by the people. It's going to be every day we get up and we fight to make it a little bit better or a little bit less worse. And that sounds disheartening, and it's no way to write a movie ending. You can't. That boy, does that that that, that sounds like it's perpetuity, maybe long form. It's maybe better for us than for for guys making features, but that's really hard. That's really hard dramatically, the idea of every day you got to kill a few snakes. But that's the world. And, and so I'm not sure that, like, I'm not sure that anything we can deliver uh, is going to change or become more helpful or more precise. I think 
I think we will fall back on tropes of, you know, of this will all go away and, all, and we'll, the great man theory of history. The, if we just get elect the right guy, this is not about elect, this is not because we elected the wrong guy, although we did. This is about, this is about what's broken in the system that this could possibly be a choice. And that, you know, dealing with that is really hard for, um, for the likes of us. Well, I feel like that is as positive an ending as we could have. So thank you to David and to, and to Robert and to Michelle. Thank you very much for coming. The TV Campfire was produced by Kristen Myers with music and editing by Five Ohm Productions. This production was made possible by our wonderful partners, Matica Productions and the Forever Dog Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their other great series at foreverdogpodcast.com. Go to atxfestival.com for details on this and our other audio projects.